reflecting the views of the United States government. This is VOA News. I'm Tommy McNeil. Nikki Haley has won the District of Columbia's Republican primary. It's her first victory over Donald Trump in the GOP primary race. The Associated Press declared Haley the winner Sunday night after D.C. Republican Party officials released the vote totals. Her victory halts the former president's sweep of the GOP voting contest, at least temporarily. Although Trump remains the race's dominant frontrunner, there are only about 23,000 registered Republicans in the nation's capital, which actually is heavily Democratic. Congressional leaders have come out with a package of six bills setting full-year spending levels for some federal agencies. The move Sunday is a step forward in the long-overdue funding process beset by sharp political divisions between the two parties, as well as infighting among House Republicans. The release of the text of legislation over the weekend is designed to meet the House's rule to give lawmakers at least 72 hours to study the bill before voting on it. A Supreme Court decision could come as soon as Monday in the case about whether former President Donald Trump can be kicked off the ballot over his efforts to undo his defeat in the 2020 election. Trump is challenging a groundbreaking decision by the Colorado Supreme Court that said he's disqualified from being president again and ineligible for the state's primary, which is Tuesday. The resolution of the case on Monday, a day before Super Tuesday contest in 16 states, would remove uncertainty about whether votes for Trump, the leading Republican candidate for president, will ultimately count. Both sides had requested fast work by the court, which heard arguments less than a month ago on February 8th. This is VOA News. An Israeli official says a top cabinet minister's trip to Washington has angered Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The dispute between Netanyahu and Benny Gantz underscores widening cracks in the wartime government and rifts between Israel and the U.S. as the conflict in Gaza continues. There are disagreements between Netanyahu and President Joe Biden over how to alleviate Palestinian suffering and create a post-war vision for Gaza. Talks aimed at brokering a ceasefire were underway in Egypt, but a government official says Israel did not send a delegation because Netanyahu not, has not received an answer from Hamas on some key questions. South Korea and the United States have begun large military exercises to bolster their readiness against North Korean nuclear threats. The joint exercises that started Monday will last 11 days. They involve in separate field exercise. South Korea's military said last week the 48 field exercises would involve live firing, bombing, air assault, and missile interception drills. North Korea has no immediate response, but it has staged provocative weapons tests in the past in reaction to the annual U.S.-South Korean exercises. It regards the major military drills as a rehearsal for an invasion. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris led marchers in Selma, Alabama on the 59th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, saying the fight for voting rights goes on even today. Harris and Attorney General Merrick Garland were in Selma Sunday with civil rights advocates. They say fundamental freedoms are still under attack in America. Harris took marches across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. 
voting rights activists were beaten back by law enforcement to March or March 7th, 1965. Vice President criticized attempts in certain U.S. states to enact voting restrictions. Also, while there, Harris also called for a ceasefire for Israel and the war against Hamas. SpaceX has launched four astronauts to the International Space Station who will oversee the arrival of two new rocket ships during their stint. The U.S.-Russian crew should reach the station on Tuesday following Sunday night's launch from Florida. They'll replace a crew from the U.S., Denmark, Japan, and Russia. Boeing's long-delayed Starliner capsule with test pilots and a new private mini-shuttle will cargo are due to arrive during the new crew's six-month stay. NASA's Jeanette Epps was originally assigned to fly on Boeing Starliner. NASA finally switched her to SpaceX. I'm Tommy McNeil, BOA News. Good morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington. Today is Monday, March 4th, and here are some of the stories we're covering. There are calls for bilateral talks amid fears that tensions between DRC and Rwanda could engulf the region. The contracts that they have signed that talk about the issue of remediation, protection of the environment, and all of those things have not been done. What we should be looking at now is looking at the contract and interpreting it accordingly. Because this is international best practice. This is what happens everywhere. Advocacy groups call on the Dutch oil giant Shell to halt its plans to divest assets from Nigeria's Niger Delta region unless proper cleanup and the commissioning of its infrastructure is complete. The cabinet has decided that those TMU positions violate Article 56E of the Liberian Constitution, which says that everybody who works in the executive branch of government serves at the pleasure of the president. Liberian President Joseph Boakai is criticized for, mon- for nominating individuals to tenured positions that are already occupied by officials from the previous administration. Those stories, plus Samson O'Malley's sports, are coming up on Daybreak Africa. A South African soldier deployed in Congo has shot dead a colleague and then turned the gun on himself. The South African National Defense Force, which oversees the country's armed forces, said the soldier used his official service weapon. South Africa has soldiers in Congo as part of the Southern African Development Community's mission to fight armed rebel groups in the east. It said it had convened a board of inquiry to work with the peacekeeping force in Congo to investigate the incident. As fears grow that the tensions between DRC and Rwanda might become a regional conflict, the Congolese president, Felix Shishikedi, traveled to Rwanda last week for talks with the Angolan counterpart, Jao Lorenzo. According to the media reports, the talks focused on creating the conditions for bilateral dialogue with the Rwandan president, Paul Kagame. The conflict in the eastern DRC was the subject of a special meeting at the United Nations Security Council last month and a mini-summit on the sidelines of the African Union annual, general, annual meeting of heads of state on February 16th. Mulengwa's Hindura is the president of the Center for Political and Strategic Studies in DRC 
and a former spokesperson for President Joseph Kabila. He tells me that talks between the two leaders, if sincere, would reduce the tensions. Well, I think whenever there's a problem and when people start talking, that would resolve the issue. And I think that's very, very important. I think bilateral talks between uh, President uh, Chisekedi and President Kagame are very important for the region. Uh, the problem here is to want to know how serious uh, President Kagame is to continue to respect the sovereignty of Congo. He wants more from Congo than Congo can really give him. And this is where uh, there's a problem where he's... There are concerns among international diplomats uh, that uh, if this situation in East Andiara Congo is not resolved, it could become a regional conflict. Do you share that fear? Yes, I think the problem is uh, already, uh, you know, has got a lot of regional implications uh, because uh, uh, the problem with uh, President Kagame is that he's got expansionist ideas and this is a big problem for the region and that's where really the problem lies. The problem is not that there's any looming threat uh, for insecurity coming from another African country. To absolutely not, I think. And uh, there, were, there, were, there were some side talks at the recent AU summit and even the UN, there were some talks about this uh, conflict in the East Andiara Congo. Now that call for an immediate talks between the two leaders to resolve the issue. Talking is good. Uh, talking is always good uh, in any kind of peace building or any time there's a conflict. Uh, in order to properly transform a conflict, there's got to be talks. But these talks need to be genuine. And this is the, the problem is that there is nothing genuine coming from Rwanda unless you give Rwanda whatever they want, which I don't think any sovereign country can accept anything like that. You know, talks about uh, bilateral trade would be fantastic talks, but not uh, talks about one country coming to impose its will in another country. Absolutely not. That is absolutely unacceptable. And I don't think there's any country in the region or anywhere else in the world that would accept uh, uh, that type of uh, predatory behavior. There has been accusations and counter accusations. DR Congo accusing Rwanda of supporting M23 rebels. Rwanda accusing DR Congo of harboring rebels against them. In that situation, does that make talks difficult or is there a way of resolving those accusations? Well, there's been reports uh, from the UN. Uh, there are reports showing that Rwanda is supporting the M23, but there is no report from any independent source. Uh, showing that uh, the Congolese government is supporting anything that is a threat to, to, to Rwanda. Absolutely not. And so um, uh, this whole idea of uh, Congo supporting Rwandan rebels is a straw man and a fallacy, actually. Uh, there is no threat coming from Congo to, to Rwanda. What I would like to add is to say that uh, it is time for, for Rwanda to move on. Uh, and it's time for the Congolese government also to 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 better equip its army. Uh, the army needs to be equipped to fight. Uh, it's uh, it's uncalled for for them to be always uh, crying, crying, crying. Rwanda, Rwanda, Rwanda is violating their sovereignty. They need to have a dissuasive force. They need to do actually, they have a military that is capable of fighting, but they need to take care of them. They need to pay their salary. They need to give them an adequate salary rather than just letting them out to go on the field and fight and they are not well taken care of. That was Mlengwa Hindura, the president of the Center for Political and Strategic Studies in DRC and a former spokesperson for President Joseph Kabila. He spoke with me from Kansas City.
Advocacy groups are calling on the Dutch oil giant Shell to halt its plans to divest assets from Nigeria's Niger Delta region unless proper cleanup and decommissioning of its infrastructure is complete. This week, a Netherlands-based non-profit released a report accusing Shell of trying to avoid responsibility for oil spills. Timothy Biezo reports from Abuja. The Center for Research on Multinational Corporations report entitled, quote, Selling Out Nigeria, Shell's Irresponsible Divestment, end quote, said the Dutch oil giant's divestment in Nigeria must be suspended until cleanup and decommissioning of assets are complete. The group accused Shell of trying to avoid responsibility for decades of oil spills in Nigeria's Niger Delta region that have polluted bodies of water and farmlands. It said Shell's assertion that it cleaned up polluted oil spill sites is flawed and cannot be trusted. Faith Nwadishi, founder of Center for Transparency Advocacy, agrees with the report. The contract that they have signed that talks about the issue of remediation, uh, protection of the environment, and all of those things have not been done. What we should be looking at now is looking at the contract and interpreting it accordingly. Because this is international best practice. This is what happens everywhere. Shell pioneered Nigeria's oil and gas explorations in 1937, but its operations have been subject to controversy and lawsuits from local communities. Shell often blamed sabotage and vandalism by locals for busted pipelines, oil spills, and environmental pollution. In January, the company announced plans to sell its onshore operations to a local consortium of five companies for $2.4 billion. Shell said the move would allow it to focus on more lucrative offshore businesses and that it was also proof that local companies are able to take on a larger share of Nigeria's oil and gas industry. But Mwadishi says if the pollution issue is not addressed, Shell's exit could set a bad example for other multinationals operating in Nigeria. Once one person does something, sets the precedent, even if, especially the bad precedences, once it is set, you see other people following up. When, when they do that, what it will mean is that you just set a template, a wrong template for other multinationals to go to uh, and do the same thing. And unfortunately, um, we have this judicial system that takes forever um, to, to um, take care of issues and cases like that. Under Nigerian law, Shell is expected to provide funding for cleanup and decommissioning of its infrastructure before exiting. But the report says the implementation of the law is flawed and said there is no sign that Shell is trying to comply with the law. The company has not commented on the report but recently released a list of eight cleanup operations it plans to carry out in Nigeria this year, all for spills less than 100 barrels of oil. Emmanuel Afemia, founder of Enermix Consulting, says Nigerian authorities must take the Shell divestment plan seriously. Nigeria should implement the following measures. Um, establish a robust regulatory framework that holds multinational corporations accountable for the environmental damage caused by their operations. Ensure that affected communities are consulted and involved in the cleanup process and that their concerns and needs are addressed. All right, um, we need to monitor and evaluate um, the cleanup process regularly.
to ensure that it is being done properly and transparently. VOA asked Nigeria's National Oil Spill Detection and Response Agency for comment on the Shell issue but has not received a response. Before Shell can sell the assets in question, it must get approval from the Nigerian government. The government has not said whether it will authorize the sale. Timothy Obiezu, VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I'm Douglas Simpoga in Washington. Today is Monday, March 4th. Still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley with Sports. Liberian President Joseph Boakai has been criticized for nominating individuals to tenured positions that are already occupied by officials from the administration of former President George Weir. As Denise Nipson reports from Monrovia, the issue has generated a lot of controversy. For barely a month in office, President Boakai has been accused of implementing policies that he once criticized as an opposition member. In question is the nomination of individuals to occupy tenured positions. They include, for example, the Liberia Telecommunications Authority, LTA, and National Fisheries and Aquaculture Authority, NAFA, at tenured. The law calls for those already serving tenure positions to end their term of office before a new nomination can be made. However, contrary to his promise, the president went ahead to remove tenure officials. When the action sparked a heated debate, the president's legal advisor, Councilor Bushuben Keita, told the nation that the constitution gave supreme authority to heads of state. The cabinet has decided that those tenure positions violate Article 56E of the Liberian Constitution, which says that everybody who works in the executive branch of government serves at the pleasure of the president. Therefore, the cabinet has authorized the president, and it has been concluded as a government policy, that all of those tenure positions that are in government will be that the president, president will exercise his authority to appoint people to any position in the executive branch of government, whether the person has a tenure or not. Anansi Maymay is the executive director of the Center for Transparency and Accountability in Liberia, Central. He told VOA that the best way forward is for the president to immediately appoint someone to the office of the ombudsman to enforce the implementation of the code of conduct. What we've seen uh, lately, uh, especially under the the presidency of Ambassador Baka, appointment to positions that are already occupied. So um, the law is the law. These people have tenure. So we're calling on the president to constitute the Ombudsman's office, make appointments to that office, fully support that office, so that whatever complaints the government has, against officials in these tenured positions who uh, must have violated the code of conduct. The complaints can be taken to that ombudsman and they can hear the complaints. 
May May criticizes the Boikai administration of wanting to do what he wants criticized while in the opposition. Very UP led government criticized former president we are for arbitrarily removing people who were serving in changed positions. So if it was wrong then for people to be arbitrarily removed without going through due process, it cannot be right now. Especially President Boikai that has promised to deviate from the past to improve the culture of governance. Senator Augustine Chi is the head of the Senate Committee on Judiciary, Human Rights Claims and Petition. He says those nominated to tenure positions will not be accorded confirmation hearings. Why should we confirm people who were in the first place appointed or nominated illegally? We will do that and it means that we are lending credence to what was done illegally, which the president should not have done in the first place. So why should the president appoint people illegally or nominate people illegally? And we're not supposed to do that. If it's wrong there, if it's wrong there, it is wrong from the very day we're doing As the situation continues to spark debates across the country, some current tenured officials have taken to the courts while others are refusing to leave their current positions. Meanwhile, some Liberians are concerned whether President Boakai is violating his promise to promote the rule of law. For VOS Daybreak Africa, I'm Denise Nipsin in Morovia, Liberia. For students with a disability, career options can appear limited. But in Ghana, one journalist is using photojournalism to encourage students at a deaf school to broaden their horizons. For VOA, Senam Todd reports from Sabelugu, Ghana. At 17 years old, Jobnimbi has never spoken a word. Born with speech and hearing disabilities, Nimbi and others at this Ghana school instead found their voices through photography. Nimbi says he is happy to share his life journey with the world through photos and he wants to inspire others who live with disabilities. But Nimbi and his peers face significant challenges, including discrimination. Other hurdles are limited training and resources. Ghana's statistical service estimates only a fraction of the children with a hearing disability are able to pursue a higher education. Yet, Nimbi remains resolute. Photography was introduced to the Savalugu School for the Deaf by Geoffrey Buta. The award-winning photojournalist is on a campaign to amplify marginalized voices through visual storytelling. His project, Photo for Change, has one focus. Train people, assist people to tell their own story in the community they find themselves, and as well as um, using, using um, photography or visuals to um, address societal issues. Buta's Photo Club offers classes on photojournalism. In less than a year, students can take professional quality pictures by themselves and write captions. So with the power of photography, they can tell stories around them. They can become um, visual journalists in the future. They can become broadcasters. The teachers also benefit with the club providing easy access to visual learning materials. You have seen a picture somewhere that has connection with uh, what you are going to deliver, the lesson you are going to deliver. And so you use the camera to take that photo, bring it to the class, and then show it to the children. 
Then you can develop your lesson from there. Buta plans to expand his project to 10 more schools in Ghana and create exhibitions to showcase students' work. Other plans include setting up internship with media outlets. And in the long term, he wants to inspire a generation of students with disabilities to become award-winning photojournalists. Senanu Todd, VOA News, Savalogu, Ghana. It's now time for Daybreak Africa Sports, and here is Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Monday morning to you, Samson. Good Monday morning to you too, Douglas. We begin Monday's edition of Daybreak Africa Sports with Athletics. Kenyan Benson Kipruto won the men's Tokyo Marathon in 2 hours, 2 minutes and 16 seconds on Sunday, breaking former world record holder Elite Kipchoge's course record in perfect racing conditions on the streets of the Japanese capital. Kipruto pulled clear of Timothy Kiplagat, who came in second, while Vincent Kipkemoy took the third spot to ensure a podium sweep for Kenya. Ethiopia's Sutumi Asefa Kibedi won the women's race ahead of Kenya's defending champion Rosemary Wanjiu in 2 hours, 15 minutes, 55 seconds, also bettering the best previous women's time over the course from Shinjuku to the Imperial Parlors. Elip Kipchoge, the two-time Olympic gold medalist, was 10th for his lowest finish in 20 career marathons. Staying with athletics, Burkina Faso's Hughes Fabrice Zango took the gold medal and the triple jump at the World Athletics Indoor Championship, which is underway in the Scottish city of Glasgow. The 30-year-old athlete won the final after leaping 17.53 meters on his fifth attempt, a victory he described as really very important for his country. It's really important. You know, we don't have big names in sport in Burkina Faso. And we need examples like that. We need examples like me to really bring something new in uh, the sport. And now to the African Games, where table tennis will kickstart the 13th African Games, taking place in Accra, Ghana, from March 8th to the 23rd. The men's singles will kick off the tournament with 84 men, while 62 women will battle for the converted prize in the event. A statement by the International Table Tennis Federation made this known on Sunday where the body confirmed that 29 countries will jostle for awards and honors in seven events at the Games. All eyes will be on Africa's highest-ranked player, Arna Quadri of Nigeria, who is yet to add Africa Games men's singles title to his medal tray. In football news, the CAF Champions League quarterfinals lineup is now complete with Tanzania, the most dominant nation, with two clubs awaiting the draw. Simba joined local rivals, young Africans who qualified for the last eight last week. Other teams in the last eight are South Africa's Memelodi Sundowns, TP Mazembe of DR Congo, Tunisia's Asperons, Holders Al-Hakli of Egypt, Asek Mimosa of Ivory Coast and Angola's Petro Atletico. The draw date for the last eight will be announced in the coming days. The Football Association of Kenya, Malawi, Zambia and Zimbabwe have announced that the four countries will hold a four-nation tournament during the next FIFA international window, which is scheduled for the 18th to the 26th of March 2024 in Lilongwe. The tournament presents a valuable opportunity for the four national teams to face quality opposition in preparations for the upcoming 2026 FIFA World Cup and 2025 Afghan qualifying campaigns. And that's it for this Monday's edition of Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Douglas, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a good Monday.
And that's it for this Monday, March 4th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for starting your week with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the entire Daybreak Africa crew, I'm Douglas Simpoga in Washington, wishing you a very great week. to the conversation on things that matter to hearts and minds of women. Here in Kinshasa, campaigns to raise awareness against the spread of coronavirus are common, but getting that information to people who have no access to water, electricity, or money can be a challenge. With strong opinions and expertise on things that impact and change their lives. I think a big thing for me is just being able to say that when these protests are happening, uh, does it turn around into policy? From right here in the nation's capital to on the ground from all over the African continent. It was powerful because it showed what is possible when men and women band together and say enough is enough. We hear your voices, women's voices, our voices, and add your voice to the conversation. Each week, right here on The Voice of America.